Well, look what I found. Anybody recognize these? This is the handbook that the groups are going through for the underestimation of sin, so another plug for that. But I'm going to put that over here. I can't believe it. They let me out of my box again to come and speak to you. This is cool. All right. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Vance Furtado, and I'm a volunteer pastor here at Resurrection Church serving in the area of teaching and discipleship. And we are continuing our series on the underestimation of sin, which Pastor Daniel got us off to a great start uh, last week as he did an excellent job teaching about the story of Cain and Abel and other places in Scripture about that sin is so incredibly dangerous. So what I'm going to be speaking to us about this morning is what I'm calling knowing your enemy, knowing your enemy. And that's going to be three areas, and that is today we're going to define, we're going to describe, and we're also going to go over how we go about defeating sin. So defining, describing, and defeating sin. And we're going to be looking at lots of different scripture uh, as we explore what the Bible has to say about this. Now, before we get into what the Bible says, I want to first of all introduce to you an evil, unseen enemy. No, that is not coronavirus. This is something that appeared in 1918, 1919, so actually over 100 years ago. This is H1N1 type A influenza. It's better known in history as the Spanish flu. It's estimated that the Spanish flu killed perhaps as many, perhaps more than 50 million people. It was extremely dangerous. And what was so sad about them trying to conquer this disease is the fact that doctors and scientists could not even see it because it's a virus. And in order to see a virus, you needed to have what we know today as electron microscopes. Back in 1918, 1919, they did not exist. So all they knew is there's some mysterious ailment was literally killing people and causing them to drop dead in the streets, not just here in the United States, but also in Europe and other places throughout the world. It was an unseen enemy that they could not detect. All they could see was the results of it, death. So today, we're going to learn about an enemy. An enemy that is in a lot of ways, even more deadly than the Spanish flu was. We're going to learn about sin. And once more, we're going to be defining sin, we're going to be describing sin, and we're going to learn what the Scripture says about defeating sin. Now, in the small groups, for the second week of the series, uh, there's a series of videotapes that we have on the church website available on our YouTube channel where Pastor Russ, from a study from several years ago, is sharing, and actually in the second tape, it's about a 20-minute message where Russ talks about the fact that we do not want to overestimate sin and we do not want to underestimate sin. And the way to avoid those two extremes is to look very, very carefully 
at what the scriptures have to say about sin. That's one reason why we're going to be looking at so much scripture uh, this morning as we explore what the Bible has to say to us. So let's first of all talk about defining sin. According to scripture, sin is lawlessness. It violates God's law and it violates his truth. And as a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, did you catch the word practice, practice? It means it's an ongoing habit. A few verses earlier, John had written talking about those who practice righteousness, in other words, make a habit of living a life that obeys God, those are God's children. Well, just as you can practice righteousness, sadly, you can also practice sin. And sin is lawlessness. As a matter of fact, just a few chapters later, the last chapter of John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 17a, explains a little more. It says, all wrongdoing is sin. And the deal is, God has given himself a witness to us about where sin is and about his will. Through creation, because we're told in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, we're told that all of creation glorifies God. All of creation declares God's glory. Also through the conscience, which God has given every person a conscience, according to Romans chapter 2, God has also revealed his moral will in that, but most of all through Scripture. And the deal with sin is sin turns its back upon all of that. As Robert Law, a writer from quite a ways back, he wrote, to sin is to assert one's own will as a rule of action against the absolutely good will of God. We make a mistake of thinking so often that we know better than God about what is good for us. And when we make that choice that we know better than God, we've just crossed the line. We've just crossed the line into sin where we are basically putting our will up against God's will. Now, to explore this idea a little further, that sin is indeed lawlessness, it's going against God, go with me in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we want to take a look at verses 18 to 23, where Paul is describing basically mankind's problem with knowing God, but yet choosing to ignore that knowledge, all right? So let's take a look, beginning Romans chapter 1 at verse 18. Paul writes, and he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, first of all, wrath of God. A lot of times we think of wrath as, oh yeah, that's like where we suddenly erupt at something that goes wrong, like, for example, maybe our football team loses, all right? We experience wrath, maybe we throw a shoe at the TV, I don't know. But that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is his permanent antipathy, enmity against sin. God hates sin. God will always hate sin because sin is a violation of God's absolute holiness. So God's attitude towards sin never changes. 
Let's keep going. Men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Okay, there's a lot there. Two things mankind does to this day against what they already know about God. First of all, they suppress the knowledge of God. It's in the present tense there, meaning that this is a suppression that goes on to this day. Think of like a coil that people are constantly holding down. And if they release that coil for even a moment, immediately it springs up. So constantly, men are suppressing what they know in their hearts about God. And coupled with that suppression is the fact that they claim something. Again, it's present tense. They claim to be wise. But in order to claim to be wise, they have to reject the fountain of true wisdom, and that is God himself. So they're constantly suppressing what they know about God, and likewise, they're claiming that we have wisdom, we don't need God. And the result of that, Paul tells us, is spiritual darkness. It's interesting, later on in Romans chapter one, three times, Paul will use the phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. The idea being, if we reject the knowledge of God, there's a consequence to that. God is not going to continue to try to reveal himself and people say, no, 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 no. I'm not interested. I'm going to go my own way. God will eventually say, okay, you want to go your own way? Here's what's going to happen. God backs off. And one of the things that happens as a result is people choose then a substitute for God, which is what Paul is saying in verse 23. They exchange the glory of God and they make their own little gods. It may be out of stone, it may be out of wood, silver, it may be a particular possession, it may be a career, it may be a relationship, but they find something because they have to find something to put in God's place. That's what happens as a result of rejecting God, failing to glorify God. It's interesting, Thomas Schreiner, who is a New Testament commentator, he writes at this point in his book on Romans, failure to glorify God is the root sin. The essence of sin is, to re is the rejection of God's glory and honor. Sin is lawlessness, lawlessness in the sense of rejecting God's truth, God's law, God's purposes, God's knowledge. That's defining sin. Let's move on. Describing sin. Two facts scripture reveals about sin. First fact, sin is rebellion 
against God and his purposes. If you go in your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, very beginning of the long book of Isaiah, which is one of the greatest books of Scripture, Old Testament or not, but at the very beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Isaiah, the Lord's prophet, the Lord speaking through him to the nation of Israel, and the fact is the nation of Israel is continuing to rebel against the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 It's the Lord himself that's speaking and he's calling heaven and earth as a witness against his covenant people. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then the Lord talks. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey its owner's manger But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Even the farm animals have a better idea of where they belong than God's own people. No wonder the Lord's exasperated. And then Isaiah speaks for the Lord. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, Children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Now, this is not just something that had just happened. 700 years earlier, the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai heard God's laws, the Ten Commandments and the rest of them. And in Exodus chapter 24, the people said, All that the Lord has said, we will do. We'll do it. And less than two months later, they committed the sin with the golden calf. And the Lord had to forgive them of that sin after, of course, God also judged them on that sin. And then the people got into the promised land and began to experience God's blessings. And again, they kept rebelling against the Lord. Notice the word spurned is used here. Spurning the Holy One of Israel. Another way to to translate that, disrespect. They disrespected God. They spurned God. They scorned God. It's the same Hebrew word that is used when David committed the sin with Bathsheba of sleeping with another man's wife And then, then of course, she got pregnant. We all know the story. And then David then plotted and killed Bathsheba's husband so that he could then marry Bathsheba. And some soldiers of Israel were also killed as a result of David's actions. And when David is rebuked for his sin, the prophet Nathan tells him, you scorned, you spurned, you disrespected God. That's what it means to rebel against God. And the thing is, to rebel against God is always costly. Go with me over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews was written to a bunch of Jewish Christians, most likely in the city of Rome, a little house church in Rome, who were seriously tempted to turn their back on Jesus. 
They are tired of being persecuted for their faith, and they were seriously thinking about going back to Judaism, rejecting Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it was, wrote this letter warning them, don't do this. You're going to be rebelling against God, rebelling against Jesus. You do not want to pay the price of doing this. So in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, he shares with them a story from the past. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Hebrews 3, 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're going back again to Israel in the wilderness. Almost from the first moment they stepped into the wilderness, they began to rebel against God. Specifically, the writer here is referring to a place called Rephidim. Rephidim is where there was an oasis, and of course, you remember, they're traveling through a desert and water is very precious. So the whole nation of Israel arrives at this oasis. The problem is the water is bad. It's bitter. You can't drink it. So rather than trust God, they grumble, they complain, they rebel. God provided water for them, but they were testing God and not trusting God. Sadly, that pattern continued. A year or so later, God has given them his commandments. God has revealed his will. God has protected them in the wilderness. They are now at Kadesh Barnea. They're right outside of the promised land, and Israel sends in 12 spies to check out the land. The spies come back. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, the land is great. The land's good. With the Lord's help, we could conquer the land. Ten of the spies says, no, we can't. They'll cremate us. We looked like grasshoppers to them, and we felt like grasshoppers. The nation then rebels. They refuse to go in. And then the Lord says, you know what? If you're not going to go in, you're going to go out. You're going back out to the wilderness. You're going to be out there for 40 years. You're not going to experience my rest. Rebelling against God and following sin is always, always costly. And did you notice at the beginning of the passage the word today? And then it appears again, verse 13, today. Here's what that means. Today, right now, don't do what these characters have done. Don't follow their example. It costs them the future that God intended for them because they would not trust God. Sin is rebelling against God. It's when we decide we know better than God 
And we know God is dealing with us that we need to respond and take certain actions and we balk at it. Don't do that. It's always costly. That's why this example is shared for us in Scripture. Today, we need to make the right choice. So, sin is, first fact, rebelling against God. Second fact, sin results in death. Go with me over to Romans, Romans chapter 5. I want to take a quick look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. There's a lot in this passage too, so we're just going to pick out certain things we need to look carefully at. So Romans chapter 5, again, this is teaching us that sin results in death, all right? So Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there, but there's certain things I want us to notice very carefully. First of all, two really important theological terms that Paul develops in the book of Romans. The first one, it's called total depravity. And it's a term that a lot of times people misunderstand. Total depravity simply means this. It means that all mankind, with the exception of Jesus, because according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and 1 John 3, 5, Jesus never sinned, never once. But all the rest of mankind has all been tainted by sin. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. It means that when it comes to sin, we've all been tarred by the same brush. We're all dealing with the consequences of it. And the reason is, is according to this passage, sin entered mankind through one man, Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and violated God's commands, they rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. What happened then according to Genesis chapter 3, was, was not only did sin enter into mankind, death entered as well. Now this idea of sin being passed on to Adam's descendants, theologians have a term for that. They call it original sin. And original sin is simply the idea that all of the descendants of Adam and Eve, with the exception again of Jesus have inherited a nature and a mindset bent towards sinning. Now, what I just told you, some people don't like. Matter of fact, sinning, sin is not a popular topic in churches anyway. And it hasn't been a popular topic in certain circles for a long time. 1,500 years ago, there was a British monk by the name of Pelagius who said, I don't believe that about original sin. Pelagius said, we can always choose to do the right thing. We're not trapped by sin. We didn't inherit a sin nature. Adam and Eve simply gave us a bad example. We could choose a different example. We can actually walk sinless before God. That's what Pelagius said, and that's what he's taught. 
But Pelagius was a monk. Monks don't have kids. Now, imagine Pelagius has a two-year-old, a toddler that comes into his monk's cell. And he just said, oh, no, no, no such thing as this inherited sin. Okay, just wait till he tells the toddler no. Watch what happens. Anybody who's a parent knows. We didn't have to teach our kids how to sin, did we? When Joe and Kathleen, our two kids, were little, you could actually just watch their eyes and see what was happening. You know, we tell them no and explain why very firmly and, and all that, and they'd look at you and just... <sighs> because that's the reality we deal with. What's sad, sin does indeed result in death, and it's death of two kinds. First of all, there's physical death. Adam and Eve were told, if you do this, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And then you go over to Genesis chapter 5, and you start reading about the descendants of Adam and Eve. Adam lives to be 900 and something, and then he dies. Adam has a son, after his own image, lives to be whatever it was, and then he dies. And generation after generation after generation, physical death, physical death, physical death. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, all of creation, all of the universe groans as a result of sin because sin entered as a result of man's sin. And death entered. But there's something even worse than physical death. And that's what the Bible calls and is described as spiritual death. And spiritual death is when somebody is separated from God. And unless someone comes to the Lord during their lifetime, that se spiritual separation from God, that lack of having a relationship with God that only comes through Christ because there is no other name given among heaven, given among mankind by which we must be saved. It is by Jesus alone. And when someone finishes their life, and they still have rejected Christ, that spiritual separation, that spiritual death then becomes permanent. And there's nothing worse than spending all of eternity separated from God. It's called the second death. It's described in various places in Scripture, but in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, it says there that we will all stand before God and those who do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, meaning that they have not gotten saved by Jesus, the Lamb of God, are then separated from God forever and experience the second death. So sin results in death. Also, there's a progression to sin. All right? Go with me over to the book of James. James Chapter 1, I'm going to actually start reading at verse 12 because that picks up the beginning of a new paragraph, but we want to look especially at verses 13 to 15 of James chapter 1. Here we see again the deadly progression of sin. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... 
I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Important point. God allows tests into our life to train us up, to teach us to be steadfast in our faith. That's the reason why James wrote just a little earlier in this first chapter, consider it all joy, my brothers, rejoice when you encounter various kinds of trials because the steadfastness of your faith causes your faith to grow. But Satan comes along. Satan doesn't want to see us grow in our faith. Satan wants to destroy our faith. And where you can see that tension between what God wants and what Satan wants is, for example, in the book of Job. Chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Job, there's a contest. On the one hand, God tells Satan, do you see my servant Job? There's no one else like him. He loves me simply because of who I am. And Satan says, well, that's a big laugh. You let me strike him. Take away everything from him. And he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord says in so many words, you're on. Job experiences all kinds of trials and difficulties, but in spite of everything, Job does not turn his back upon God. Job praises God because of who God is, not because of the goodies God gives. Satan lost. God allows tests and trials to grow us in our faith. Satan has a totally different agenda. Let's keep going. Let no one say when he... Oh, I just read that. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Anybody in here like to fish? Okay, several of us. I caught one fish my entire life. It was a perch, and I held it in my hand. I just handed it to Dad. Yeah, it's bigger. I don't want it. But a lot of us like to fish, okay? Imagine somebody who's a fisherman who's going to go fishing. Maybe it's at Lake Ming. Maybe it's up at the Kern River where we still have water somewhere. And, okay, I'm going to go fish. I've got my fishing line, and I've got a tin can. I'm going to tie my line around the tin can. I'm going to throw it out there. Come on, fish, come on. Like the fish looks at it. But then somebody else comes along who knows what they're doing, like Pastor Mark, who loves to fish, and he has a nice lure, and he puts that on there, or some little tasty tidbit that the fish likes, and he throws it into the lake, and there I am trying to catch a fish with my tin can. There's Pastor Mark with his fishing line, and the fish, ooh. And the fish bites. And the fish becomes Pastor Mark's dinner. But that's how sin operates. It lures us in. It lures us in, and then it traps us, and we're stuck. Great example of this in Scripture is the story, sadly, of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll let you read it on your own, but basically Ananias and Sapphira decided it was a good idea to try to claim a gift they didn't really give and to lie to the church, but also to lie to the Holy Spirit. Bad idea. But that's what sin does. And again, it results 
in death if we give into it. In other words, guys, sin kills us. It's a cancer, it's terminal. And that is not what God wants. Listen to this from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 31 to 32. The Lord is speaking to his people and he says, cast away from you all transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. God does not want us to see us destroyed by sin. That's the reason why the Father sent his Son to take care of our sin. So we would have a way to escape it and live in victory and live in freedom and have a relationship with the Lord forever so that we could defeat sin. And that, matter of fact, is our last thing that we're going to discuss this morning, and that is defeating sin. There's four steps that I'm going to share with you briefly from Scripture when it comes to defeating sin. First step, make the right choice. Make the right choice. Great Scripture for this is Romans 6, 23. For sin, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A verse that a lot of us have memorized, we're very familiar with. Matter of fact, that's part of the problem. We get so familiar with them that we're not necessarily hearing it anymore. The point that Paul is making in Romans chapter six is there are two masters. One master is sin, the other master is God. We're gonna serve either one or we're gonna serve the other. And each leads to very different destinies. So in the case of sin, sin does pay. And when Paul uses the term wages, he probably has in mind the picture of a Roman soldier receiving their wages, which is where we get our word salary from, from how they used to pay the Roman soldiers. But imagine a Roman soldier, instead of getting whatever his wage would be, receives a little piece of arsenic. Here's your wage. You swallow it. Okay. Ooh. That didn't taste good. Don't worry about it. See you in another month. Month comes by, soldier comes to receive the wage again. Here you are, another little piece of arsenic. Swallow it. He swallows it. Oh, now I really don't feel good. Years go by. It's time for you to have your final pay, your final wage. Here, just swallow all of it. That's the wages sin pays death. Jesus, though, doesn't pay a wage. Jesus has a gift, and his gift is eternal life. And according to 1 John chapter 5, let me look at the reference, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 and 20, eternal life begins and ends and always includes knowing Jesus. And for someone who knows Jesus, eternal life is not something that begins after you die. Eternal life begins the moment that you came to Jesus. Yeah, you may physically die if the Lord tarries, but spiritually you never will. 
That's his gift. So the first step, make the right choice. Second step, accept Jesus as your sacrifice on your behalf. Great scripture for this is 1 John, excuse me, not 1 John, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's the gospel. God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Remember, Jesus never sinned. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and elsewhere, like 1 John 3, 5, Here's why that's important. The fact that Jesus never sinned means he was able to offer himself as a perfect, holy, sinless sacrifice to his Father to take away our sins. He is the perfect Passover lamb who sacrificed himself so that we could have a relationship with God. Another way to translate that he became sin is to say it this way, he is a sin offering. That's because he is that. It's described that way in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 and 10, that he offered himself on our behalf. And the result of that, we now have Jesus' righteousness. When the Father looks at us, he does not see our sin, he does not see our failures, He sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. We become reconciled to God. Reconciliation, it's a beautiful term used in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, where we were once enemies to God, but now we are reconciled through the death of his son. Not only that, we've been adopted into God's family. We're now God's kids. We're part of the family, and proof of that is the Holy Spirit that lives inside you when you came to Christ. He's the down payment on the reality that you're a child of God. Third step, keep seeking cleansing for ongoing sinful thoughts and actions. We still struggle with sin sometimes, don't we? That's the reason why it's so important to memorize and keep aware of the passages like this. So let me just read this. 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 8, and I'm going to go a little bit into chapter 2. If we say we have no sin, and there are people who do that to this day, by the way, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If we say we don't have a problem with sin, that we're somehow perfect, two things. First of all, we're kidding ourselves. And secondly, we're calling God a liar. I don't want to call God a liar. But what 
if we sincerely confess and repent of our sins. David wrote Psalm 32 after he committed his terrible sin involving Bathsheba and her husband. And David writes there, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Because he experienced that. God forgave him even of those terrible sins that he committed. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, why can we be certain that when we confess our sins to the Lord and we repent, God forgives us? Two reasons. One, God's character. We were just told he is faithful and he is just. God is going to do the right thing. Regardless of whether we believe it or not, God always <clears throat> does the right thing. Secondly, Jesus' work on our behalf. He is the propitiation. It means that Jesus appeases, he satisfies God's wrath against our sin by the sacrifice of himself. Another big word, expiation. Not only is God's wrath satisfied, it is completely removed away. We are cleansed of it because of what Jesus did. And he's our advocate. He's our defense attorney. Some of us may even remember an old TV show and some TV movies about a guy named Perry Mason. Perry Mason, eight-year-long old black-and-white TV show, he only lost one case in eight years. Only one. Jesus never loses a case. We're told in Scripture in Hebrews 7.25 and elsewhere that Jesus is not only our defense attorney, our advocate, he's also our high priest. He intercedes for us all the time before his Father. Every time Satan tries to accuse us of something and we're covered by the blood of Jesus because we come to Jesus, Jesus will speak up and say, nope, that's under my blood. It's taken care of. Satan, you lose again. Again. Again, because Jesus is our advocate. All right, fourth step. Trust in our victory in Christ. Now, this is not on the slide, so you're going to have to go with me in your Bibles, whether you're using an app or a printed Bible, but go with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Because I want you to read this with me, because this is powerful. Romans 8. I'm going to start reading at verse 31. Because Romans 8, 31 to 39, is the passage in the New Testament that describes the victory we have in Christ over sin. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who shall condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who in it indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, let me pause there for a second. Imagine we're in the divine courtroom. We're standing in the stand. God is the judge. It looks like we're in serious trouble. But God says, I'm not just your judge. I am also your deliverer, and my son is your savior. So then verse 33, Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, there's somebody who brings a charge all the time, Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he constantly tries to accuse us before God. And if that doesn't work, you know what he also does? He accuses us within our own conscience, reminding us of sins that we have since confessed and repented of. But Satan just likes to bring up those old records and play them over and over and over again. He loves to accuse. Who will bring a charge against God elect? Well, Satan does. But remember, we have a defense attorney. We have a high priest who is constantly interceding for us. Who is to condemn us? Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no what? For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation because we are covered by the blood of Christ. Verses 35 and 36, Paul there lists Lots of stuff that's pretty negative, pretty nasty, including martyrdom. His point is this, that nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Nothing. And then verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul created his own Greek word there. First time it appears. More than conquerors. Super conquerors. Some of you guys are into Marvel. Some of you guys are into DC. Some of you guys like both. That's nothing. That's make-believe. In Christ, through him alone, through his strength, through his power, through his filling, through our identity in Christ, we are more than conquerors. And then Paul decides to wrap it all up. Verse 38 and 39. For I am sure... Another translation says, I am convinced. It's in the perfect tense, meaning this is something Paul believed and he continued to believe until the day the Lord took him home. I am sure, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the victory over sin we have. And it's not us, guys. It's in Jesus alone. So as we wrap this up, two final points when it comes to knowing sin as our enemy. Number one, 
If you do not know Jesus, you need to seek out salvation from sin that is only available in Jesus because you don't stand a chance apart from him. He's done everything, everything. He gave his life for you. So accept salvation from sin that is only available in him. Secondly, maybe you know Jesus, but in an area of your life, sin is defeating you. Seek the deliverance that is only available in Jesus. He's our everything. If God's dealing with you, I'd encourage you to come forward Talk to the Lord. We're going to have our pa some pastors here, some people to pray with you. But don't leave without doing business with God.